Brawlers, welcome back to Throne Hands. This is a very special edition, and I'm quite excited. Alongside me is Danny Woods, per usual, but we got a special guest on today, ESPN's MMA reporter, Phil Murphy. Phil, how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Um, you know, all things considered, I live in an area of the country, I live in Connecticut, where things are kind of like calm with all the chaos with coronavirus and all that. So uh, it, my life feels pretty normal. And I can, you know, count the hours now to another UFC card. So I'm stoked. Yeah, for sure. How was your first Father's Day? Oh, dude, thanks for asking. Um, it was it was really cool. Um, I have a daughter who is seven weeks old, so she's tiny, but she's really cool. And like, I knew I would love her. You know, like you're kind of a monster if you don't love your kid. Um, but I like her. Like, she has this cool little personality where I, I'm, I'm not great with kids. If I, like, pick her up funny, she'll, like, give me, a, like, a side eye and, like, a little bit of sass. But, like, normally she's super excited to see me. Like, she responds to my voice. Like, she's my little buddy. So uh, it was really, really cool. My wife, you know, let me sleep in, which was the best, uh, best gift she could have given me. All right. That's great, man. All right. So we're just going to start right off here. Um, so how would you get into uh, – like reporting and journalism, like what kind of led you down that path? Well, it wasn't until you know, I kind of backed into it. You know, I went to school uh, at George Mason University in Northern Virginia, and I went there for a business degree. I moved around a lot as a kid. My dad was military. So, you know, I went to 12 different schools between kindergarten and 12th grade. And especially in high school, every time I'd go to a new school, the guidance counselor would call me in and say, hey, what do you want to do for a living? And I just said, I, I want to do anything in sports. And she looked at me like I was a little kid saying I wanted to be like an astronaut or, you know, play in the NFL or whatever. She's like, yeah, that's, that's great. But what are you good at? And I was like, uh, math. So they kind of pushed me towards the business, um, the business route. But when I was in college, there was a local company that uh, had some sales internships. And I, this is in the D.C. area. And I took one of them because it was a sports company. I wasn't great at the sales gig, but they offered me after the internship, a full-time job. And I asked them, Hey, can I just do the sports reporting stuff? And they're like, well, you can, you'll make less money or your ceiling for money is lower because there's no commission. You just report. And I was like, I don't care. You know, it's a side job for me in college and I'm going to love it. So I did that. And that was my sophomore, junior year of college, uh, applied for gosh, 10 different internships at ESPN. Uh, my junior year of school, got interviewed for one. It turns out they, they interviewed like 40 some odd people. I got super lucky and got in. It's kind of like, you know, getting an internship at ESPN is kind of like making the final table at the World Series of Poker. Yeah, you need to be pretty good, but you need to be super, super lucky to have it pan out. So once I got that internship, that's when I realized, hey, this is a realistic career field for me. And I've just been doing it ever since. I came up to ESPN uh, January, I'll make 11 years. And so I'm 33. So it was like right out of school. I came up here and I've been, I've been doing it ever since. Yeah. So I, I guess this is a good, uh, uh, leeway into this. I, I did some research of course, and you, you reported on DC high school sports, uh, for a little bit. How did that help in your career? Well, and that's a good question. Um, it's, it had the high school sports helped me because you have to do everything yourself, right? Like I was going to the games. I didn't have a producer. I didn't have a crew. 
or I'd show up to the games and they said, hey, where's your crew? And I'd just point at myself. I had me, a tripod, a notebook, and I would just storytell. So whether I was watching a high school football game or basketball game or, you know, crew or baseball or softball or volleyball, I would just tell the story of the game. And I had a, a brilliant editor by the name of Angela Watts. She's a, a longtime veteran of the Washington Post. She taught me how to write uh, for, for print, um, which was invaluable. You know, she's such a brilliant sports mind that Angela had, and I'm still grateful to her to this day. But I would go there and I just kind of trial by fire, right? I, I'd find the coach after the game, set up my camera, do my interview, and then watch it back. And I was like, oh, that was hardly watchable. What can I do better? And I just did that again and again and again. So as I slowly grew in the industry, and now, you know, I'll go to an event, and they just hand me a microphone. I have cameras, I have lights, I have people helping me with studio. Now I can just focus on storytelling. And so what that helped me to do is consider all the elements of production. So now I can have an eye toward production when I go out and tell a story or write a package or have a feature online. And I think it helps overall, because all we're doing in this business, what you're doing here, what I do on my daily basis, is we're communicating, right? Message delivery, message receipt. And it really helped me have an understanding of both sides of that. And I think, I think it shaped me overall as, as a communicator. You mentioned moving around a lot growing up, and that seems like something that, that would provide you with a really, a really unique uh, sort of perspective on sports. How did that shape the way you look at sports, the way you report even today? Dude, there was nothing more instrumental in, in how I cover sports than the fact that I moved around a lot. And it wasn't just, there was a lot within the United States, but also I lived in Germany for, for a couple of years. Um, and I played on a German soccer team. I can order food in German, but I do not speak German at all. Um, so, you know, me being able to communicate with people there, sport was this unifying language. I don't want to be cheesy, but in, in a lot of ways, it was a bridge, right? Like we're playing soccer and I kick the ball into the goal. You're going to high five me and hug me because we had the same we pulled in the same direction. So now as I go out and I'll cover, you know, on a given day, I'll talk to uh, John Dykes, who's a world football commentator in Singapore, and Stephanie Brantz, who covers Aussie rules football and rugby league in Australia. And I'll talk to Adriano Del Monte from Lombardia, Italy. He's a, a football reporter. And then I'll talk to, uh, you know, European football. And then I'll talk to, you know, Adrian Wojnarowski, who covers basketball. So it's like, I have to understand, okay, yeah, I know how I consume sport, but also I have to consider our audience. So if I talk to Australia, well, me saying football, they're going to think of something. And if I talk to somebody in Europe and I say football, they're going to think of something. And if I talk to you guys and say football, they're going to think of something. So understanding how sport is consumed in different environments, but also understanding how it's a unifying factor, um, you know, it, it, helped, it helped me and it helped me realize like, you know, no matter where we go, it is one of the few languages that just works. And, you know, I, I, when I first got my job with ESPN International, I was hosting SportsCenter in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I was hosting it in some markets where English wasn't even the first language. So I had to even like simplify some of my scripts a little bit because I'm talking to people where maybe they speak four languages and English is the third one they knew. Um, so it's just, you know, you, you try and figure out, okay, what's the most compelling way to storytell again? A lot of that was visual and a lot of that was just, uh, you know, relying on numbers and stats. But then again, um, being able to just communicate across continents has served me really well, particularly in the role I have at ESPN, where I am English language broadcaster, but with international. So it's, you know, any, any given day, content I shoot goes to like five different continents. Yeah. So like you said, you uh, did sports center and stuff in sub-Saharan Africa, besides, you know, the language barrier, what were some other challenges that you had uh, doing reporting in that area? Well, and I don't want to overstate the language barrier because most of our markets like Nigeria, South Africa, uh, a lot of Eastern, Eastern Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, 
English is fluent. And a lot of, the, a lot of those guys speak English better than me. But we we're also, our, the same show went to Senegal and Cameroon where, um, you know, French is the predominant language. But uh, to answer your question, the, the challenges of, of doing sport there, you know, just uh, we were doing American sports. So if you watched our sports center, like the set would look a little different than you may see. It like, wouldn't be like Scott Van Pelt studio. Um, but you'd say, okay, the highlights look the same, graphics look the same, but some of it, you know, just some of the, um, the terminology, you know, just things that aren't reflexive to you and I, like if I say, um, you know, Liverpool is the new Premier League champion, they would say Liverpool are the new Premier League champion, um, you know, spelling, using um, English as in England, England based, not American English, but English English spellings. So favorite, color, a lot of those words with the UR. Uh, so when I would type in my scripts or have to like maybe suggest graphics, I would have to adjust my spelling a little bit. The metric system, that's the one, that's the big one. So, um, you know, for us, if, if it's like a cold game, it's like, ah oh, man, it was zero, right? Zero degrees is cold for you and I. For them, zero is like, ah, it's chilly, but it's, it's, it's literally freezing. It's 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, no, no, no. Okay, so for you, that's zero. I'm in Minneapolis at Super Bowl 51, 52. And Super Bowl 52 in Minneapolis, like, bro, it's, it's minus 20 Celsius. Oh, my gosh. And then we're covering baseball as well. It's high, it's far, it's gone. It's not 430 feet. It's 145 meters. And it's not a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. It's 160 kilometers per hour. So a lot of that stuff, you know, was, was a challenge for me to kind of reflexively figure out those benchmarks is what's impressive and then communicate that to the audience. Because sometimes I was having to translate things they would see on screen. Albert Pujols crushes a home run. I have to tell them how far that is in meters. Oh, okay, now the audience, while their eyes open, he hit that ball a really long way. So that, that's probably the biggest one, the metric system. Okay, so you report high school sports in D.C., you go on with ESPN, you anchor uh, on Sports Center International in Sub-Saharan Africa. What led you to being one of the big voices now in the UFC reporting sphere? Well, I mean, I, I still don't consider myself one of the big voices um, because I, I just respect so much the guys who I, you know, I share the platform with. In truth, it started because I was a massive fan and I've been at ESPN since 2010. So, you know, anytime there was a big MMA story, I would pitch it. And at the time, different networks had the rights and, you know, we could only show so much. So we were sending guys out to the event, but we were sending like two or three people. But there was this constant like groundswell of us. who were like, no, MMA is bigger, man. We got to tell these stories. There's so many compelling uh, human interest stories out here. Let's tell it, let's tell it, let's tell it. Well, finally, ESPN gets the rights. And it was the uh, Brooklyn card where uh, TJ Dillashaw um, got knocked out. Was it by Henry Cejudo? I think it was when he got knocked out by Henry Cejudo when that was the first ESPN card. And I looked around and we had like 30 people there. And it was just, it was this aha moment that it's arrived. So um, since then, I still work predominantly in ESPN International. Um, one of my big areas is Australia. And I just kind of looked like a year ago and I'm like, man, this guy, Robert Whitaker is a champion. He's legit. This guy, Adesanya is, is pretty nasty. He's coming up. This guy, Volkanovsky, someone to know. So I pitched it to Australia, like, Hey, let's do a weekly MMA show a weekly UFC show. Because even at that point, all the cards were on ESPN, even the pay-per-views at that point. Now they have a pay-per-view model. So I pitched it. They took it. We started rolling with it. And it was great. And then to get guys who have much more important things to do, Ariel Hawani, Chael Sonnen, Brett Okamoto, to come on my show and be guests. And then not only that, but also just be good friends as they are and share my content. Like that's what really gave me a little bit of a platform to say like, hey, you know, I, I, I can do these interviews too. And sometimes I provide interesting stuff. 
So it's this really, really cool team effort. And for guys who have, you know, the, the clout in the industry that they do, it is so awesome that they, you know, will have either have me on their programs or utilize my stuff or, you know, retweet me or whatever. And that's led to some really cool, like bucket list opportunities for me. I got to cover UFC 237 in Brazil, UFC 234 or 243 rather in Melbourne, Australia, when Adesanya knocked out Whitaker. So those are things as a fan, like I just didn't even think was possible. Um, so it was just, it was just me being a fan and then getting really, really lucky that I was positioned in a good spot at ESPN that when we got the rights, you know, the high tide kind of rose all shifts and it's given me a really cool platform. So when you were younger, what sports were you, were you expecting to cover? Like what I know MMA has come on and and the scene the last few years and it's, you know, growing in popularity, almost, almost at boxing, but not quite there. So when you were growing up, what sports were you looking to cover? Well, in truth, I didn't even think this was a realistic career for me until I was about 21 and I was in college. I was just a sports fan and then just trying to ride this wave as long as I could. Um, But the sports that I liked when I was a kid, you know, it's kind of your typical like American sport menu with probably I I played soccer. That was the sport I was best at. So maybe a little bit more elevated. You know, I was watching European soccer, you know, well, one, when I lived there in the late 90s, but also, you know, when I came back to the U.S. in the early 2000s. So it was your NFL, your NBA, Major League Baseball, nothing out of the ordinary. I fell in love with the UFC at UFC 69. I was somebody who, you know, we kind of watched the VHS tapes of like Dan Severn and Tank Abbott and Hoist Gracie and some of those old school guys, you know, I'd just go get a stack of tapes from like Blockbuster or Hollywood Video and then rip through them. But it was more like the, you know, the blood sport spectacle of it all. Really an appreciation for the sport I had was UFC 69 when uh, Matt Sarah knocked out GSP. And it wasn't even that fight that made me fall in love with the sport. It was lower down on the card. Leonard Garcia was, just got his butt beat for 15 minutes by Roger Huerta. But I was so impressed with Garcia's toughness. So I went back and did some digging. I'm like, this guy had some wars in the WEC days. So the next UFC was UFC 70, and that was Krokop Gonzaga, where Gabriel Gonzaga, Krokop, Krokop. And then the next one was like a big rampage card. So I was just like, those three pay-per-views, I mean, it's like a fish hook, right? It just got in and it got in deep. And I've just been a massive fan ever since. Okay, so you look at the, look at the cards you've watched as a fan, cards you've reported on. Uh, if, if you had to pick a favorite as a fan and a favorite as a reporter that you've covered, uh, what would those be? I have instant answers for you. I've already mentioned them. Uh, UFC 237 in Brazil as a fan. There is no energy in an arena. And I'm getting chills even thinking about it. Like hearing Bruce Buffer introduce Jose Aldo, the king of Rio, to fans in Rio. Uh, the energy in that arena is, is unlike anything I've experienced in any other sport. I've, I've covered four Super Bowls, a World Series, NBA All-Star Games. Um, I have never felt an energy in an arena like Jose Aldo coming out to a Bruce Buff and getting introduced by Bruce Buffer. So that as a fan was number one. It was a bucket list of uh, like item for me, but it was so remote. I didn't even think it was real. And I got the call on like 10 days notice, like, dude, we need you in Rio. Can you go? And I was just, I mean, showed, I didn't even pack my bags. Like just get me there. Um, as a, as a journalist, my favorite was UFC 243. We had a, a suite in Marvel stadium. And this is an arena that seats like 60,000 people set the, set the, um, uh, attendance record and what was cool about that was we had a show every day of the week where we were really able to storytell and we kind of wove um, Robert Whitaker Israel Adesanya bits into each segment it was a show for Australia so Brett was there Brett Okamoto Chael Sonnen was there uh, they were with me on the desk every day and then we just had like a rotation of fighters coming in 
And looking back after the fact, I had that plus the uh, NBL, which is the domestic uh, Australian Basketball League. They tipped off, and a lot of those guys came through. And we had this just beautiful arena behind us. And then all week, we were able to tell stories. I did like 10 sports centers from site. I mean, I got content from that that's just like, dude, I could I could have retired then and just been like, this is so cool. It's something I'm going to show my grandkids someday. Like, I was really proud uh, that we were able to accomplish that. And then the event itself, just a spectacle of just like, I just, you know, being in an arena and seeing 60 plus thousand people. And, and this is for the UFC. We're normally like, you know, 15 is a good number. So that was my, uh, as a journalist, that was my favorite. And so it's cool. Those happened like what, four or five months apart. I mean, it's like it, 2019 was really, really good. Um, just from that standpoint, I, I, I was, I covered, uh, sports on four continents in four months. Um, so yeah, I got the uh, frequent flyer miles up <laughs> between those two things. It really seems like good storytelling is, is really important to you as a journalist. And that's at least from my perspective, a, a goal that I have as well. Is that really what motivates you to, to go out and, and report on things? Is that what inspires you to do your job well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've, you know, listen, I, there are some journalists out there who I respect and it's all of it's like the hard news angle, like the real important weighty, like socially significant stories. And dude, those are, those are massively important, especially now. I mean, look at the world around us. Right. But uh, for whatever reason, that was just never my strength. Um, and I'll break news every now and again, but again, like I just, that wasn't really my strength. I just, I want to tell compelling stories and I want to, whether it's the most famous athlete out there, you know, I, I was lucky enough in 2015 to spend like four days with Conor McGregor at the Mac mansion in Vegas. Um, or if it's like somebody, you know, maybe you or I, you know, would have never otherwise heard of this, this just girl named Carly Cottingham who just had this incredible, um, you know, personal hurdle she had to overcome to play her high school basketball, her senior season. And she did it because it was important to her. And she she actually had part of her arm amputated and was able to return to the court within like 60 days because it was so important to her to play high school basketball. Those stories both have value. And if they're told well, you know, that's the beautiful thing of, of sports as a canvas. Like you don't necessarily need to know these people to be moved by it and to be locked into it. So it's, um, it's something that has, you know, I, listen, I don't want to say like I've mastered it, but it's something as I, as I watch my content, I watch it back and I say, okay, how did I communicate that? Did I hit the points I wanted to hit? Did I elevate it? And I'm never going to be disingenuous, right? Like some days are just Tuesdays, right? Tuesday's a normal boring day, but if there is an important story or if there isn't the ability to really tell a story from multiple angles, I love having the bandwidth to do that. And I, I've been fortunate and blessed enough that my, my platform has, has afforded me that. And I've been able to do it you know, at, at a, at a great company like ESPN for you know, coming up on 11 years. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of, uh, like, you know, good storytelling and, you know, we're going to, I'm going to transition to interviews here. So when you go in to interview a fighter, like you did at, uh, 248 with Adesanya, Romero and Jatrick, what do you do to prepare to go into those interviews? Uh, I mean, I, I used to watch a lot of fights. I don't do that as much anymore because my interviews are less about like, Hey, Joanna, what went wrong? The two times you lost to Rose, you know? Um, I, what I do is I try, I talk to my producers or whoever, whatever content we're producing. And I say, Hey guys, what is the goal here? You know, are we trying to speak to a fight fan? Are we trying to speak to somebody who maybe has a loose familiarity with the UFC? Are we trying to talk to somebody who, you know, is just kind of a general sports fan. So then I try and figure out what lane we're going to be in. And then I try and speak to that audience. What do I find compelling about them? 
So for Adesanya, man, I had a great interview with him and we hardly talked about fighting at all. It was a lot of like headspace stuff because he's somebody he's, he'll let you know what he wants to talk about. And I've interviewed Israel enough times that I know that if you try and force a topic on him, he's not going to respond too well. So I kind of let him lead the interview and I had a couple of questions, you know, ready to go if I needed to change topics, but I basically just listened to him and then followed up. It's like if you and I were to go out for wings and just kind of have a talk about our careers, right? Like that was that interview. Now that's certainly not every interview. Sometimes it's, hey, I have a feature assigned. You know, I have my, I have my 15 or 20 questions and I'm going to make them, I think the, the key to good questions are three keys. They need to be open. So not like a yes, no answer, right? They need to be neutral. So I don't want to lead them anywhere, right? I want them to do the leading and then I'll take them wherever they take us. And I want the questions to be lean because I don't, I, I want what I need from them in terms of in, um, information to be clear. So open, neutral, lean questions. And then I order the questions in such a way that I think the conversation is going to flow best and it's going to feel most natural. So now I've prepped my questions depending on the, my, my intended audience. And then we, ha we talk and I, have my question. I look at the one question I'm asking, I'll ask it and then I'll listen. And if there's anything that I need to follow up on from what they say, I'll follow up. And if not, if I feel they've covered the information as I need it, I look down and I ask the next question and having the questions listed out for me, it sounds simple, but I don't have to put mental energy toward, Oh, what am I going to ask next? Cause then I'm not listening to what they're saying, which is the important thing. And that's something I, you know, I learned through a lot of, you know, trial and error. I'd, I'd have an interview. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I thought he was giving me so much, but this guy was just using big words and saying nothing. Um, and so that's really helped me, you know, have some really cool interviews, get some good content. And then, you know, the biggest thing that allows me to do also is relax and make it feel natural because every now and again, you'll stumble upon some breaking news. Um, or every now and again, Dana White will say something crazy and you'll, you'll end up on John Oliver or something, you know, it's like, so you, uh, I, I think that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, you do want to be familiar with your subject, but I spent, I spent a little too much energy at times, like trying to master who, you know, X fighter was, if I'm interviewing Luis Pena, like get every biological thing about him. And then we do the interview and it would be like kind of a boring interview. So the goal here, you know, is to inform, entertain and inspire. And I think there are a lot of different ways to do that. And for me, the best way to do it is by prepping questions and listening. Has there ever been an interview that you've gone in kind of expecting one thing and then the response you get from a fighter or really anybody even outside the UFC that you've just been floored by the response that you've got from them? Well, I mean, the Yoel Romero one from UFC 248 was one. I ended up as a GIF with the whole go, go. I didn't expect that. I asked him about... Israel Adesanya's takedown defense. And he just, I think he was having a rough weight cut or something. Yoel did not want to talk about that. He was just saying, you could do whatever you want to do. And he's like this big, like rah, rah speech trying to get me like run through a wall or something. Uh, so that was a little, you know, disarming, but you know, I, I hit up my, my guys over at our social channel and I was like, I don't know why he went that way, but that was awesome content. So let's get that up on the site. It got like 2 million views. Um, Conor McGregor was a pleasant surprise. Not that I expected anything different, but he's one of the most intelligent, um, you know, fighters and just like just a heady guy. So in our conversation, it just, I mean, it was, it was like almost enlightening the conversation we had, um, you know, just about his upbringing, why he fights, um, how important for him visualization is in his fight. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and it feels like every event, um, Alex Volkanovsky is somebody, it's like, if you've ever had a chance to talk to him, he's like one of the most down-to-earth people. It's just, if you didn't know what he did for a living, you would just think he's some, you know, 
average 30 year old dad from Wollongong, Sydney, Australia, you know, you know, girl dad times two, and he just happens to be the best featherweight on the planet right now. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there are all kinds of people who have been very pleasant interviews. And then sometimes, you know, I've, I've interviewed, and Israel Adesanya is one where I've interviewed him and had like this, like, wow, that was incredible content. And then ones where it's like, I don't know if a single quote from that is usable because I, I didn't really know how he was wired and how he wanted to operate. Um, but again, you know, you win some, you lose some. And that would be something that I would say to encourage anybody out there who actually is like, who actually cares what I have to say about interviewing techniques. Um, listen, just because an interview goes badly doesn't necessarily mean it's your fault. You should always self-evaluate and be, you know, your own worst critic and all of those things. But sometimes people just don't want to give you answers um, or they don't want to talk about you, what you want to talk about. And you just, you know, take the L, have a short memory and move on. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of uh, Volkanovski, uh, he's fighting at 251 coming up in two weeks. So what, what are your expectations for uh, the 251 card and what are you most excited about? Man, I'm all most excited about the main event because I think of the, of the three title fights, I think it's the least predictable, right? And that's why we watch this sport for that like, oh my gosh moment, you know, on the, you're, you're on razor's edge for 25 minutes or 15 minutes if it's, if it's a three-round fight. And I think that one presents the most variables. For Volkanovski Holloway, I mean, yeah, it's, it's complex because Alex isn't with City Kickboxing. He's doing all his training with Eugene Behrman over Zoom, which is not the same as like grappling with Brad Rydell and Dan Hooker and sparring with Israel Adesanya. It's different, right? Um, Eugene's going to be there, but they're going to link up in Abu Dhabi. Um, and then like Piotr Jan, Jose Aldo, I think Jan's going to win that fight pretty easily. The main event for me presents the most variables. I can see that going a number of different ways. But another fight that really intrigues me there is the rematch from UFC 237, Jessica Andrade, Rose Namajunas. Um, Rose was dominating that first fight until, you know, she went for a high crotch single, or excuse me, she went for a, uh, a guillotine. And was it, you know, was, was she going for a high crotch single? Anyway, she got slammed on her head and got knocked out. Um, and Rose was so dominant in that fight, right, that the first time they fought, Andrade, it being in Brazil, was like a two-to-one favorite. Andrade won the fight by knockout in the second round. But despite that, Rose Namajunas is now the two-to-one favorite. And we haven't seen Rose since that day in May of last year. Um, and she openly started questioning whether or not she even wanted to continue fighting. Now, I've seen some of her sparring videos. She looks sharp. I get it. But it's rare to see somebody who's favored win by knockout and then in the rematch be a significant underdog. So for me, the two fights I'm most looking forward to there are uh, Burns Usman in the main event for the welterweight belt. Burns is on fire. He's my pick for fighter of the year as we talk here, you know, at the midway point of the year against Kamara Usman, who has been utterly dominant in the UFC. He's been 11, he's 11 and 0 in the UFC. And I don't know if any of those are even close. I can't think of one that was. So that's one. And then 1A is uh, Andrade Namajunas. And the fact that Andrade Namajunas is the second fight of a pay-per-view is just bananas. That card is so loaded. Yeah, it's it's a really exciting stuff. And like you said, with Gilbert Burns, fight of the year, I think he's the fight of the year too. Coming after, you know, he he was at lightweight and he filled he filled in at welterweight, right? Uh, as a as a replacement fighter. So I I've always found what he's do, what he has done in this welterweight division to be pretty amazing. And they're they're teammates, right? Usman and uh and so do you know how I don't know if you know any of this, but how the I know Usman's with Whitman, right? In Colorado. Yeah, yeah. So what happened was uh, Usman was always going to go to Trevor Whitman. That's according to Gilbert. I talked to him last week. He said Usman's plan was always to be in Colorado, whether Usman was fighting Masvidal, Leon Edwards, or ended up being Gilbert Burns. 
The only wrinkle now is that since it is Burns v. Usman, Henry Hoof is not going to corner Gilbert Burns. That's going to be Vicente Luque, uh, Danny Lev, who's his local coach from Brazil, and Wagner Hosha, who's his uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach. Those are going to be his three cornermen, whereas I think Henry Hoof would have filled in for his, uh, his coach from, from back in Brazil. So that's the only, only real difference there. But they're, dude, that's what I like about that fight, too. It's not like this fake bad blood. These guys openly respect and, and admire each other. They said they've helped each other before. They're going to help each other in the future. But this belt's up for grabs. They're laying aside the friendship. I respect you. You respect me. Let's see who's the better fighter. And that's what it's, it's like this pure martial arts, you know, element to it, which is rare, you know, in how things are promoted these days. And we, you've got such a big card coming up with UFC 251. And as we've seen uh, over the last couple months now, the UFC has a really big opportunity the rest of the summer being one of the few sports that's active right now. How do you see the UFC star kind of rising in the world of sports as it is kind of the only show in town as far as American sports go right now? Well, I mean, turn on SportsCenter, right? Especially after a fight, you're seeing far more UFC highlights than you know, even you did back in March. Um, obviously, that's there's only so much time in the day. So once you have the NBA restart, and the reports are that the NBA is going to go, you know, basically have games all day, like March Madness every day. It's going to be bananas. Um, NHL playoffs restarting. Major League Baseball, short season, sprint to the finish. Like, real estate is going to have to be shared. But I, I think and I hope that some of the high entertainment cards whether they were entertaining on paper or they you know proved to be entertaining like uh, as we were talking about before we went on air the jessica i cynthia calvillo card top to bottom wasn't terribly sexy going into fight night but then there were so many great fights on that card you're like you know you hope people are watching just the mma evangelist in us so listen once i get back from uh fight island abu dhabi it's not really an island um once i get back from abu dhabi the UFC has just submitted to the Nevada State Athletic Commission to have fights every Tuesday and Saturday at the Apex. So they want to do Apex uh, UFC full events on the 1st, 8th, 15th, 22nd, 29th, and then Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series every Tuesday in between. So they're going to try and stay active. But, you know, I think the UFC basically has the next four weeks to win over any additional fans. They've done a darn good job. They've put on good shows. It, it seems by all accounts they've kept the fighters safe. I think given everything that's going on and the challenges that they're presented, I think Dana White and company are going to say, hey, this is a W. We did as best as we could this summer. And, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of, you know, this weekend with Annette, two weeks from now with the welterweight division, what do you think the most stacked division in the UFC is right now? Mm. I still need to, I, I would still say men's uh, lightweight. There's no women's lightweight. You know, I would just say lightweight division. Only because you look, you have an undefeated champion at the top, right? Khabib Nurmagomedov. Um, interim champ Justin Gaethje is on fire. Tony Ferguson, who had, yes, a win streak snap. But, I mean, that dude, no one would argue if he ended up getting a title shot. He's waited so long and been on the doorstep for so long. And, heck, six time might be a charm with Khabib. Uh, you have Conor McGregor still active. You have the winner of Poirier Hooker there. Uh, it, it's just so deep. And it's not just they're good fighters. They're objectively entertaining fighters. So I would say lightweight is there, but if somebody else wanted to come to me and say welterweight or even women's strawweight, I wouldn't argue. Women's strawweight is just so stacked at the top as well between Andraj Namajunas, Jean Vaili, and Yoni and Jacek. All four of those ladies have been champion. 
it wouldn't surprise me if all four of them were champions again someday with just how things work. If, you know, Rose beats Jessica in the rematch and then beats Zhang Li, and then, you know, loses a trilogy fight to Andrade and then Zhang Li beats It's just like, who knows, man? Joanna fighting Zhang Li the way she did at UFC 248 proved to me those four are basically interchangeable. And however you want to mix up that bracket, sign me up and I'll watch. Oh, for sure. And um, so with the, you know, Amanda Nunes, with how dominant she is in the both in both the featherweight and the bantamweight division, what do you think's next for her? How, have you heard anything? Well, I mean, she's one thing that she said is potentially retirement. Um, and it's one of the few where when she says it, unlike, you know, Connor saying he's retiring or even Cejudo saying, yeah, I'm, I'm done. See you guys later. Um, that's one where you start to wrap your head around it and say, what is left for her to accomplish, right? Unless she wants to go up to like 155 and face Kayla Harrison. She has not only cleared out every other women's featherweight champion and bantamweight champion, she's beat everybody who's held the flyweight belt except for Nico Montano. And the UFC is not going to book Montano against Nunes. I don't think a commission would approve of that. This girl's cleaned out the top three weight classes utterly and completely. Now, Megan Anderson might raise her hand. And Megan is a dear friend of mine. But Megan did miss an opportunity in, Felicia, in facing Felicia Spencer to put herself in line. Now, Megan has come out and said, like, hey, I'd love to fight you, Amanda. But again, like, she even, said, even conceded, like, you're the GOAT. If you want to walk away now, good on you. And so Megan's going to try and stay active and make a statement in her next fight. And, you know, probably if she wins, say, hey, it's either Amanda or let's open up the belt. Uh, at least that's what I would do if I were her. But as far as what's next for Nunes, there aren't many other options. Even if Irene Aldana beats Holly Holm in early August, like I don't, I don't see an avenue for Aldana to challenge Nunes, let alone beat her. And everybody else in Bantamweight who's a contender has already been beaten by Amanda. So it's, the, the options are short, and, and Dana says there's no trilogy in the works between, you know, Shevchenko and Nunes. There aren't many times that fighter A has lost to fighter B twice and then gotten the third fight. You got what? Um, BJ Penn, Frankie Edgar. You got uh, Tito and Shamrock. You got, like, what? Uh, Chael and Jeremy Horn. I mean, we're going back, man. It's been – Tito and Liddell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but even that was like – there were two, and then Dana's like, I'm not doing the third. He needed Oscar De La Hoya to come in and Golden Boy and do the third. Um, so the fact that, you know, Dana White signs off on a third fight when the first fighter's 0-2, it's rare. But if Shevchenko continues to just mow through flyweights and Amanda wants to still fight, that might be the only viable option. It's just – it's a testament to her dominance that she can win, make it look easy. And, I mean, you, you watch MMA, right? You just – you watch her. She just looks different. It's like she, she's just – it's like the, the big kid on the block playing basketball. Like when you watch anybody who's just the best in their sport, LeBron James, you watch, you know, Mike Trout, there's just something – Lionel Messi, there's something like about that guy. It's like you just, you just have like a higher ceiling than everybody else. And Amanda Nunes looks, looks and fights the same way. To take it from one dominant champion in Amanda Nunes to another one, we've seen John Jones have these issues with his contract recently, and he's come out and said he'd be – willing to hold out for years, vacate the light heavyweight title to get something worked out in the way that he wants. What What is your take on, on John Jones and really the larger contract situation we're seeing with several fighters in the UFC right now? Yeah, I mean, to me, John Jones is the, the GOAT, and he's, he's indisputably the men's GOAT. I mean, the only time he's lost was, you know, an illegal DQ elbow to Matt Hamill. Um, you know, I knocked you out with my elbow at a 12-6. to 6. It's kind of a silly rule to begin with. 
Um, the way John went through and when he went into the light heavyweight division, a lot of people were saying like that might have been the deepest division in the UFC at the time. If you remember, if you remember it was like, you know, Chuck gets knocked out by Rashad and Rashad gets beaten by Machida and just, you know, Machida by Shogun. And it was just like the belt was like a hot potato. And then in comes this like bony dude from upstate New York and just, just mows through everybody. And he's like, you know, tapping out Vitor Belfort and Americana and he's, you know, slumping over Leo Machida with a standing guillotine. And it's just like, who, this dude is just another level. And he has sustained that. And with John, the rest of the pack has caught up with him with his um, offensive skill set. But I still think his defensive skill set, his ability to elude and evade, is, is still head and shoulders better than anybody else in the light, light heavyweight division. And that's, that's what won him those close fights, I think, against Dominic Reyes and Chiago Mejeta. Um, and even the first fight against Gustafsson, which in hindsight wasn't as close as we all remember it. It's just no, nobody had challenged John really until Gus. Or took him so, down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just like, and he's sitting there taking down Daniel Cormier, who's, you know, an Olympic wrestler. John's taking him down for fun at UFC 182. Um, so what do I think is next for John? It's, it's a shame that we missed so much of his prime because of out of the octagon issues. But apparently the dude doesn't need the money, right? So it's like, if he's not happy with the paycheck and he can just sit there and hang out with his daughter and, you know, play with his dog and like, you know, you know, post things on Instagram and get paid for that. I don't blame the guy. And, you know, until there's a fight that's really compelling for him and whether that is a rematch against um, Thiago Mejeta or Dominic Reyes or Jan Blakovic, it wouldn't be a rematch. You know, we may not see him again for a little bit, but as, the, as far as the broader star problem, yeah, that's a problem because you start talking about the, you know, the highest pound for pound draws in the sport. It's Connor, it's John Jones, it's Amanda Nunes, it's Henry Cejudo, it's, it's Jorge Masvidal. Every one of the people I named right there is saying, hey, I need more money to fight. Or even in Amanda's case, not saying that, she's saying, hey, I'm, I think I might be done, I might retire. Where again, everything has a price. If, if you know, not going to happen, but Dana, if Dana said $100 million for the fight, she's like, oh yeah, I'll fight in the heartbeat. Who, who am I beating up? Um, so, I don't see a situation given their financial constraints and reports of financial concerns at the UFC's parent company that they're suddenly going to start hanging out with blank checks. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see once we get through the summer, once we get past DC Stipe three in August and DC says, absolutely. He's retiring. He's done. We got Adesanya Costa, John Bay Lee's next title defense. Things start to thin out a little bit in the fall. And then you're going to have all these sports competing for space if there are no stars, like A-list stars, ready to fight, that can be really problematic for the UFC. So I would say enjoy the now, build the demand, but they got to get some of these guys who are having contract issues, they got to get them back in the octagon. Do you think you could see uh, after the DC uh, Miocic fight, could you see John Jones moving up to heavyweight and possibly competing uh, for the title coming in as the light heavyweight champion against Francis Ngannou? I mean, they're, they're messing around, and they, you know, those two are talking about it on social media. Dana doesn't seem to have much interest at all, and I even tried to like, be sneaky with my questions in an interview with Dana not long ago. I'm like, Dana, as a fan, you know, what's, your, what's your appetite? I, I think I used the word appetite like four times in that interview. YouTube just skewered me for it, but I, I, I stand by it. I said, Dana, what's your appetite for that fight? And he's like, oh, it's, it's fine, but you know, classic Dana. You want to talk about defensive elite, defensive maneuvering. He's like, there's so many more compelling fights for Ngannou and so many more for John Jones. There's no need to pair them up. Okay. 
Um, but, you know, there's, there's kind of a heavyweight problem, right, at the top because you have D.C. Stipe. If D.C. wins and retires with the belt, which if I had to pick today, that'd be my bet. Um, well, now, you know, Stipe's kind of second fiddle. He's got to go back and, you know, face Ngannou maybe. Curtis Blades shouldn't hop Ngannou in line. Ngannou's beaten Blades twice. But then after that, it's kind of a, a steep drop-off. They need bodies at heavyweight. Do they need bodies at light heavyweight? If you were to kind of like have this triumvirate of Thiago Mahetta once he's healthy and Dominic Reyes and Yabalkovich and other guys who might be coming up, you can get by for a little bit with that. Heavyweight, you know, in boxing, boxing is at its best when it's got compelling heavyweights. MMA is the best when it has compelling heavyweights. We've been so lucky to have this trilogy come together, DC Stipe. But after that, I mean, it's like Nganu, and then Curtis Blades can keep like laying and praying on dudes and then just, you know, not get that. We're talking trilogy fights, right? After the one guy's beating the other twice, there's really no argument or incentive for Nganu to ever fight Blades again. So you need somebody else to come through, and, and John Jones is a name. Um, so to have him available to do that, I don't think it's crazy. It's just it's a matter of, you know, his desire and when – maybe that well runs dry and he's like, all right, you know, maybe I, I come back to the negotiating table and have less leverage. And maybe, maybe my number comes down a little bit. Um, I don't know. I, I just want to see John Jones fighting again. I miss it. And uh, you know, hopefully back into the year, we get lucky and he comes back. For sure. So this weekend we have fight night Poirier versus hooker. What are some fights that you have on your mind that people should look out for? Uh, there are a few that I think, are, I, mean, I think this, this fight's going to have, or this card's going to have a lot of finishes um, on it. There are a lot of people who it's like, you know, they, they realize they don't get paid by the hour. Co-main event, Mike Perry, Mickey Gall. I think it's really compelling if Gall beats Perry, and Perry's like a three-to-one favorite. But if Gall beats Perry, I mean, Perry at that point, what, they have losses in six of eight or something like that? Um, this, is, this is kind of a, you know, career trajectory type fight for him. Whereas Mickey Gall is somebody who's, you know, forever has just been known as the guy – who, uh, who beat up CM Punk, maybe now if he goes and he beats Mike Perry as a significant underdog, he's a name to watch. We start giving him some guys with the number next to him. Um, top of the prelims, Luis Pena against Kama Worthy. Dude, that Worthy can crack for a lightweight. That dude has heavy hands. We saw it when he beat Devontae Smith. That was statistically, I think it was the second biggest upset of, of 2020 to this point. The first was Roxanne Mataferi beating Macy Barber. And Barbara, you know, sustained an injury in that fight. But the second biggest upset of 2020 was um, Worthy over, uh, what did I just say, Devontae Smith. Or what, what, maybe it's 2019. That was the biggest upset of 2019. Um, yeah, because it was like in August. But he's fighting Luis Pena, violent Bob Ross, who's a guy, you know, massive for the lightweights. He's six foot three as a lightweight with this really impressive array of strikes, a, a ground game that's very adept. So that one, that's one I'm going to be watching. And then another one, I had another one. Oh, um, Kay Hansen uh, against Jin Yu Frey, the two, you know, Invicta studs who got signed late. Kay Hansen, 20 years old. She's been a pro since basically right after her 18th birthday, you know, kind of flyweight, strawweight. And she's fighting Jin Yu Frey, who was the Invicta Atomweight champion, both of whom are debuting in the UFC, adding to a deep strawweight division. I think the winner there, even though, you know, Frey's a little older, um, Hayes, Hansen's got a significant size advantage. I think if Hansen wins, you're going to start seeing her as kind of one of these, you know, next prospect to watch. She's 20 years old, got a nice little Invicta resume. Uh, she beat the Dream Chaser. I can't remember her name, like Eggmanson or something. She's got, she's got a couple of decent wins on her record from Invicta. 
So uh, that's one I think it, I think that might be the first fight of the night. So um, yeah, guys. So for me, that's like first fight, middle of the show, co-main, and then obviously the main event, Hooker Poirier uh, should be just, you know, it would, it would surprise zero of us if that ended up being a fight of the year. Yeah, for sure. And do you think uh, Mike Perry's decision to have his girlfriend in the corner just by herself, what, what's your opinion on that decision? I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, you know, because we can sit there and say, like, what if Eugene Behrman weren't there for Dan Hooker? You and I would be talking about, like, oh, what kind of effect is that going to have between rounds? Henry Hoof, you know, there's no, there's no coincidence that the two best welterweights in the world have trained with Henry Hoof. There's no coincidence that Gilbert Burns, the Mundial world champion, beat Crone Gracie in the finals at Mundials, suddenly has these just hammers, and he can use them, and he's beating Tyron Woodley on the feet pummeling Woodley on the feet because they're working with Henry Hoof and they're getting this coaching between rounds. Mike Perry has taken something that should only ever be an asset in the octagon and said, yeah, I don't need it. And again, all due respect to his girlfriend, who I understand was a high school wrestler, but if you're, if your only quarterman is that's their, that's their credential, you're entering Diego Sanchez territory. And that's a problem. So Perry's still a three-to-one favorite, but I think that's on his natural skill set and his, his very well-rounded boxing game and his heavy hands and you know, being in the smaller octagon and all of that. But if this fight's close, entering the third round, and you know, Mickey Gall or you know, any, anybody who's fighting there, right? Like you know, Luis Pena coming from you know, the, the great gym in Florida, and, um, anybody who's there, they're going to be getting very specific pointed coaching. Hey, you know um, – put string punches together. Hey, you know, sprawl. Hey, let's, let's come out and, you know, uh, uh, spinning back fist is there or whatever it is. Mike Perry, what is he going to get between rounds other than just generic? Hey, good job. Way to go. Um, that's, he, he's just, he's removed something that should only ever be an asset for you. And I think at this level, that is objectively an unwise decision. So you talked about Gilbert Burns and his work with Henry Hoof there, and you mentioned Kay Hansen as a potential rising prospect in women's, in women's straw weight that's going to be fighting on this card as well. If you had to look at the UFC roster now and pick out somebody that could be that next riser like Gilbert Burns or the next big prospect to, to rise up the rankings, who are you seeing that by the end of 2020 we're going to be saying as UFC fans, hey, this guy came out of nowhere – and he's a championship contender. I mean, I, I feel like such a noob and a mark for it, but Sugar Sean O'Malley. I mean, the dude, after taking, having like every reason to fall off the face of the earth in terms of his quality, right? Injury, BS, you know, suspension, yada, 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 comes out at UFC 248 and just pieces up a dude. And then we see him again, and he's, he just, he wins again, and he wins comfortably, and he's showing that he has just, very significant power and a very adept striking game. I mean, that like uppercut feint one, two um, to, in his last win, the knockout was just, it was art. And, you know, again, Cody Garbrandt got all the headlines for, you know, his like mortal combat finisher away, way toward B throw from the hips, you know, damn near decapitate Rafael Sanchao. But O'Malley's was just so high level technically that Garbrandt, swung for the fences and connected right O'Malley he set it up and he could do that to anybody and that dude just showed like you know out of a out of a kind of a strange faint combination that he can create 
rare power and very technical on the ground, very good. You know, he splits his time in Arizona between MMA lab and, and a smaller gym. He seems to have a good balance between two gyms. You see it with somebody like Alex Volkanovsky, Dan Hooker, guys who go to CKB for camps, but they also train elsewhere. So it seems like he has a, like well-rounded coaching. He's got a nice level head on his shoulders, the balance of confidence without being cocky. Um, he's shown for me, uh, you know, at times when he could have hopped on somebody and, and gone for the finish, he showed that rare maturity and patience for a guy who's 25 years old. So maybe, maybe it'd be a little bit of an acceleration to say by the end of the year, he's entitled contention because, you know, that division does have some killers in it too, man. Bantamweight is shaping up pretty nicely with Sandhagen and Sterling and Garbrandt's back and, you know, Sun Chiao's not going anywhere and Aldo and Jan and just down the line. But if, if you and I are talking a year from now, maybe, and say two more fights and wins by O'Malley, maybe then we're saying, hey, this dude, it, it might be time for that, for that big step up and, and to put himself in position to fight for a belt, which at 26 is just, you know, that's, that's like Rose Namajunas, uh, John Jones ahead of the curves type stuff that you just don't normally see. So he's, he's the guy I'm circling. And in fact, uh, at ESPN MMA, we have our mid-year awards coming out. I think I voted, I, no, I don't think I know. I voted him number one for me for my prospect of the year. For sure. And speaking of the Bantamweight division, do you believe that uh, Jose Aldo deserves that shot at the title after what Aljamain Sterling did back a, a few weeks ago when he set in that, uh, that rear naked choke within two minutes to finish the fight. What are you, what's your opinion on the Bantamweight uh, championship? Well, to answer your question, I don't think Jose Aldo is most deserving of the title shot, but it has very little to do with Aljamain Sterling and, and the rear naked choke. Now, if the UFC had booked Jan Sterling, I would not argue it. You know, Aljo has just gotten so nasty from the back. If you remember UFC 228, he locked in a Suloev stretch, which at the time was only the second time that submission was ever completed in the UFC. The third was like an hour later when – the beat Magomedsharipov did it, but still, nonetheless, Aljamain Sterling, he's just so good at taking the back, using his wrestling skills to back take, and then his jujitsu from that position is just nasty. He's, he's got a nice little, like, he's, he's figured it out, and it's going to be really exciting to see what he does in his, in his next fight, and, you know, he's not too far from a title shot himself. But I would say the reason Jose Aldo doesn't deserve the title shot against Piotr Jan is because Marlon Moraes is there. Jan and Moraes were booked. Moraes beat Aldo. How does it happen that that fight gets canceled in Kazakhstan, Jan Marais, and then Aldo just leapfrogs Marais, unless there's some like unreported injury or something we don't know about. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling pretty hard done if I'm Magic Marla Marais. So I'd be there you know, screaming my butt off, and it's not, it's not in his nature to do that. Um, so, you know, Marais is somebody, as, and even I forgot him. That's on me. I started talking about all the guys O'Malley would have to hurdle. I didn't even mention Marais. So it like shows like that guy's so far under the radar as somebody with a little number one next to his name. What are we doing? You know, the ranking system, we can reform them all we want. There's a lot of discussions about if that should happen. But um, the ones we have, we, we should be using. And if this dude's number one and he beat the guy who's in the title fight, how do you justify that barring, you know, injury and last-minute replacement? I, I don't get it. And that's – listen, Jose Aldo is, is an all-time great. He's going in the Hall of Fame someday for what he did at featherweight and he seems to have crested and he hasn't done anything yet at bantamweight to, to say to scream in a, in a pretty deep weight class i deserve a title shot he should have been given that opportunity against you know garbrandt or any pick 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 your guy who's like in that four to six range um but again he's he's done so much for the ufc he was such a great champion for so long that's the one justification i'm not too salty about that i just i feel bad for marash 
So pivot away from the UFC for a little bit and just more with your journalism career. You said you went to, to George Mason University, and I've seen in the past you've been involved with the Washington Journalism and Media Conference, which is uh, something that I actually had the pleasure to take part in while I was in high school and really shaped my idea of what I want to do in journalism. Uh, how important is it to you to, to give back to young journalists, people interested in, in the media field? Oh, dude, it's, it's huge. Um, only, not only because, but primarily because I had so much help along the way myself, you know, and I, I still do now, right? Like when Ariel Hawani decides, Hey, you know, this thing that Phil did, I think is pretty good. I'm going to retweet it or share it. And it gets seen by a million people. Like he doesn't have to do that. Like that's somebody who has a bigger platform than me helping me out. Or when he, you know, he or Chael or somebody appear on my show, that's doing me a solid. So I feel like I should, I should pass that on to somebody who's kind of, you know, just along this spectrum in this career, who's making their own way along it as well. Um, so yeah, anytime I can go to the WJMC, I do. Um, I've been as a guest speaker, I want to say like four or five times in the last seven or eight years. Um, and literally I bring a stack of business cards every time I go and it has my personal cell phone number on it, my email and anybody who wants it. I say, you know, after I'll do whatever, whether it's a big speech in front of 40 people, it's, it's a Q and a for an hour. It's a, it's a breakout session, whatever it is there. And they, they have all of those things at the WJMC. I couldn't advocate for that event enough, by the way. Um, but I'll say, Hey, if you have any questions, if you ever want me to review your work, if you want me to, you know, give you feedback, here's my, here are my business cards. And every year I didn't bring enough business cards, but it's astounding that most years I hear back from like two or three people. Like I'll get a crap load of people who follow me on like social media, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. Um, but for people who actually say, Hey, here's my work. Can you please review it? It's a much smaller number. And then people who do it multiple times, it's like, I can count maybe three people who have done it. And I still keep in touch with them. In fact, right before I came on this show, my buddy, Marco Peralta, he's a, uh, he hosts a radio show in the Imperial Valley area of Southern California, uh, like Mexicali down there. He was interviewing uh, somebody from Combate Americas, um, the, gift Gar the Gifted Garcia, I can't remember his first name, it's not Rafael, it's something, The Gifted Garcia. Anyway, he's interviewing Garcia and he said, hey, can you take a look at some of my questions? Sure, went, he sent them to my personal email, went through his questions, I like this one, word this one differently, uh, this one's kind of duplicative, whatever. Because I don't know, man, I, I just feel like it, it doesn't take away from my chance to get a piece of the pie to help other people. And if there are people who are passionate about this, who think that I have something of value for them, dude, that's an honor. And I want to be able to help them any way I can. And everything I tell them, like, take this with a grain of salt, because there are people who I would say are more qualified than me that may disagree with it. But whether it's questions on interview, um, you know, interview techniques or story writing or highlight reads or whatever it is. Um, if it means 20 minutes or an hour of my time and it proves helpful to somebody else, dude, like I had people who spent so much time with me. I'd feel like such a jerk if I didn't, if I didn't pass that on and just, you know, keep just raising the bar as much as I'm able to with storytelling nationwide. Just, you know, cause dude, people, I, I've been there. I've been, that's just like so hungry to get my break and to want to get better. I just feel privileged to be able to do that. So, Speaking of young journalists, uh, what advice would you give to your 19-year-old self? Now that you're 33 and have experience, what would you say to your 19-year-old self? Uh, 
don't date Christina. No, I'm kidding. There's no Christina. Um, uh, <laughs> I would say, um, man, the biggest thing for me, I had to be recklessly naive, right? Like I heard no so many times. I used to have this list. I still do somewhere. Um, back when I was trying to, when I first signed with ESPN, I was kind of in this like split role where I was off camera and on camera a little bit. And they don't really, that doesn't, that's something, that's something that really exists here. So a lot of my, my bosses and managers were saying like, Hey man, we need to get you all on the production side. You're good at that. Have that be your career. And I really wanted to do the on air side, the anchoring, the reporting, the hosting really, really wanted to do it. So it was like this constant pull. And so I actually applied elsewhere. I was trying to apply to all these different stations around the country. And, you know, sometimes you apply to a place and you don't hear back and then they repost the job and you're like, can I apply to that place? Cause I was applying like literally anybody who posted anything anywhere. Oh, there goes my TV. See, we're alive. Um, so I, I'd apply to anybody anywhere um, who would, uh, you know, had a job posting. And I needed to keep track of places I'd, I'd applied to because I want to say, hey, you know, I saw that you repost the job. I'm still available. Would you please watch my tape? Because I was sending them links and they weren't even opening it. Or they'd open it and watch like 30 seconds. So I'm like, hey, I, I have some new stuff in there. Check it out. Let me see. And I started keeping a list. And dude, I'm not exaggerating. I had like 200 networks on that, on that list of people who just didn't reply or someone would write back and say, hey, we appreciate your input. We've gone a different direction, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I mean, I've probably heard back for to like interview for like two or three of them. Um, and I actually did get one job offer, but it was just like, I was in a, a, a personal situation outside of work that just didn't make it conducive to moving at that time. So it was like the worst possible circumstance. I had, it like broke my heart to say no, but it's, it just worked out so well because now I have the job that I always dreamed of having because of 200 plus no's. Had I gotten one of those jobs, I don't think I would have made it back here and I certainly wouldn't have made it back here as quickly as I did. So what I, would, what I told my 19 year old self is dummy. I'm not giving you any advice. You're going to want me to tell you how this ends. I'm not going to tell you how it ends because you'll mess it up, but just try like hell because you will get it someday. And when you do, it's going to be absolutely worth your trouble. So that would be my advice to any 19 year old self out there. I'll be kinder and I won't say dummy. I'll say aspiring sports mind. It's out there. It's attainable. This is a war of attrition. Get better. Do anything you can to get better. Solicit advice, watch your tape, voice highlights in your bathroom. I did that. Do all those things. When you make it, it'll be worth your trouble. It'll be worth your headache. That's my advice. Well, uh, Dan, you have anything else, my man? I just, I just have one thing I want to add. It's a little bit of a, a lighter question uh, to wrap up here. So we work in college radio right now, and uh, one of our buddies on the staff, Matt Drabble, is from the south of England. He's a rabid Portsmouth fan, and you talked about following European soccer really closely. What team? Well, who are your teams uh, in European soccer? Well, it's not Pompey. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but – uh, so I, when I lived in Germany, I lived in Kaiserslautern and it was the year that I was there, they got promoted to the Bundesliga and then they won the Bundesliga with Mikhail Balik and Yuri Zhorkaev. So K-Town, Kaiserslautern, FCK, they're my team. Um, I'm a Man City supporter in England um, because I'm a huge New York Mets fan and I just was drawn to the little brother in the big city, which, you know, in the early 2000s, they were, they had, they'd gone up from 
League One to the Championship to the Premier League. So I was like, hey, you know, we can this is this is my club. And when I started supporting them, I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen if they get, you know, relegated again because I didn't have the ability to watch championship matches. But I have a lot of stuff like this isn't even a soccer shirt, but it's you know it's kind of Man City colors. So I have so many you know shirts and things that are City colors. So they've been my my club for some time. And it's funny when they won the league in 2012. I actually had to watch that match on tape delay. I was flying back um, from visiting my mom for Mother's Day. And I watched, I, I landed at the airport after they had had the dramatic comeback against QPR and won the league, you know, in stoppage time, incredibly dramatic and theatrical. I landed and I turned on my phone and it was just instantly like a hundred texts from people I haven't talked to. It's like, I couldn't watch, I couldn't look at the phone, but I just knew something crazy happened. And the whole time watching the match, I thought they had blown it because it looked like they were going to lose. I'm like, this is this is how I truly earned my stripes as a City fan. I had it easy, right? They got they got bought by the billionaires, you know, three four years into me following them. Um, but it's been it's been a nice decade, you know, four titles in eight years. So it's um, FC Kaiserslautern, uh, Manchester City, and then Italy. I've been trying to like make myself a Napoli fan. My grandmother's from Nap- from Naples. I'm actually going to have an Italian passport in November. Um, but I just, it's hard, it's hard at this point to get into it because I've covered it and done all that with it. It's like, I just, I just appreciate players and I appreciate good matches. Like Atalanta Lazio was such a, a fun match yesterday. Um, or, you know, if, if this doesn't air if Wednesday, it was a fun match. If this doesn't air immediately. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, those, those are my clubs that I follow for, uh, for Europe primarily. So we have, you know, somebody who's going to say, ah, Fairweather fan, bandwagon fan, whatever, Manchester City. And then a team that's in the bottom half of the Dritte Liga in Deutschland, FC Kaiserslautern. And they're in the third tier, and they're almost going to get relegated to non-league football. They just filed for bankruptcy. So in that sense, Pompey supporter, you and I are brethren because my team almost entered administration as well. All right, Dan, you got anything else? That's it for me, man. Phil, where can, the, where can people find you on social media? Uh, they can find me at Phil underscore sports, uh, both on Twitter and Instagram. I'm not on Instagram as much. Like I only like share photos of my daughter. Um, but when I go to events again, hopefully I'm going to events again soon. You know, with everything, it's, I miss going to events. I do a lot on Instagram there. But primarily I just shout into the wind on Twitter at Phil underscore sports. All right, guys, that's it with our interview with Phil Murphy. Phil, I cannot quantify how thankful I am that you've come on. Thank you so much. Dude, it was great talking to you guys. All right. Guys, we will see you for another episode very soon.